there is a something positive we can hang on to there, which is that we can learn these new skills of resilience. You know, we could talk about sustainability, but this word's becoming kind of passe as we recognize there's, it's not that we want to sustain what we're doing because that's not working. We have to embrace we're in the middle of this huge climate disruption and societal disruption and live into that with new skills of resilience and, and awareness and maybe just a lot, a lot of questioning as we decide, well, what do we do now and how do we live now? Welcome, everybody, to the Here Together podcast. We're your hosts, Charles Matthews and Kelly Roberge. And we're obsessed with the big question. Can we live together sustainably? And if so, how? The reason we're obsessed with this question, these questions, is because we know there are thousands of people out there right now looking for, pining for a more satisfying, engaged, supported, and sustainable life and living situation for themselves and their families. And maybe you are one of them. We know so many people who simultaneously feel blessed and privileged with a good, secure, abundant life, but they know they are missing something. This single-family lifestyle has caused so many of us to trade away community, mutual support, and joy for the illusion of autonomy, abundance, and safety. There's an ache in our bones for a life that is more connected and meaningful, a life that sees us giving more of our gifts and that leaves more and less of an impact on our world. If you feel that same ache, you're in the right place. Kelly and I are on an expedition to find a way to live that strikes the right balance between privacy and community, connection and freedom, and leaves a much lighter footprint on the earth and the climate. There's not much time. On this season of the Here Together podcast, we'll be curating conversations with the people who are living in eco-villages, developing new co-housing communities, inventing or rediscovering low impact technologies and even designing new ways of living together. We're talking with people who are at the forefront of sustainability science and human design to get answers for us and for you about how regular people can break out of the suburban box and live in a way that makes sense to our bones. We're beyond excited to talk with Dr. Kat Caldwell today about some of the human issues of living in community. How do we mobilize in the face of climate change when we're mired in grief and or denial? How do we make individual changes that have a positive impact? Dr. Caldwell has a PhD in human development and is a researcher and teacher in the field of conservation psychology, which strives to understand, quote, the reciprocal relationships between humans and the rest of nature with the goal of encouraging conservation of the natural world. Cat researchers how people make conservation-based choices in their household and how messaging can promote healthier and more sustainable food systems and behaviors. Cat encourages her students to become self-aware, critical thinkers, and engaged citizens with an understanding of what motivates conservation behavior. Kat is also the interim director of Thrive Ithaca, the Ithaca Eco Village Education Center, and she's a resident of the Eco Village. She's a perfect person to talk with us about how we can make this dream of ours work. With enough money, we could design and build all sorts of awesome housing and community features. But unless we understand what makes people live well together and behave in sustainable ways, we're not going to succeed. So we are especially grateful to talk with Kat. Welcome and thank you so much for being with us, being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. Yeah, and we appreciate the the time that you're giving us. And, and like Kelly said, we're just really curious about both your 
your understanding of the psychology around change and your personal lived experience of making a decision to move into a co-housing community and what that kind of took for you kind of inside um, to make those changes and, and what the, what the, what the payoff and, and I guess what some of the, some of the costs were as well, but we're going to kind of start with our, our usual first question. Yeah. Our starting question is since a big part of sustainability is sharing, we want to know, did you have to share a bedroom when you were a kid and how did that go if you did? Oh, interesting. Uh, I did have to share a bedroom at least for a chunk of my childhood. I had a step half sister come along about eight years into my development. <laughs> and um, after she was just a little baby, we started sharing a room. So yeah, I remember some challenges with that, especially because we were so, you know, different on the developmental, you know, life cycle, right? You know, so it was, I had to share my room with a baby. And then as I was coming into my preteen and puberty, teenage years, she definitely was not. And she would witness some embarrassing things sometimes and point them out to me. And it was just, now it, it didn't actually go that well. And I wanted my space. I wanted to be with my friends. I didn't want her tagging along, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of tricky, actually. Kind of multi-generational. You know, as, as we get older, eight years apart doesn't make a big difference. But but when we're little, eight years is a completely different, completely different stage. Yeah. So we're kind of curious, you know, what did your journey to the world of, of conservation, psychology and, and sustainability look like? What What came first, the psychology or the sustainability? Great question. Well, I was obsessed with psychology as soon as I discovered it as an undergrad. So back in college, I was at Clemson University in South Carolina. So all my roots are from the South and I've migrated North. And once I took my first psychology course, I was hooked and I knew that was the major. So I changed to that and was not thinking about being like a clinical or counseling psychologist, but super fascinated about development and how we become who we are. And that led me to, you know, continue on into graduate school and I was very much focused on research and academia and so forth. But it was many more years. It was not until I was living in Seattle and my fiance at the time and I were talking about, you know, where would be our first place to live together when he brought up the, this idea that, you know, living as nuclear families was the scariest thing on earth to him. <laughs> And I think, it, you know, I don't think I know it came out of his own personal experience and background. And he knew what he didn't want to replicate in his life. And I really took that to heart and started thinking about it. And there we were in Seattle and talking to our friends about, you know, our next stage as we started to think about moving in together as a couple. And we discovered a co-housing community in Seattle. And that became the very first place we lived together and formed, you know, really my concept of what it could mean to live in community. And um, I think that's why we ended up here in Eco Village. And eventually, as I started to live out, living in community and more integrating the lessons of sustainability in life, that started to touch me in my work. And I wanted to, you know, started to bring that to, well, what's the what's really um, motivating me now as a psychologist and what, you know, what can really, what is the most important, what are the most important things psychology can bring to the world right now? And so that just kind of got me where I was. And pretty soon I was 
developing courses in conservation psych and eco psych. And, and now there's this incredible integration. You know, there's this, it's, just, I live and breathe it almost every day, which I think is good. <laughs> but I don't know. It's, you know, it's all, it's all of it every day now. Cause you're, you're literally living it in the community that you're living and you're teaching it and you're, and you're trying to promote it. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're doing it. And I'm, I hope you find ways to um, ignore it for a little bit sometimes, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, a solid majority of, of adults in the United States now finally acknowledge that climate change is taking place and that it is caused by human activity. So there's sort of at least uh, a, a change in at least the surface level of denial, but, what part of our psychology is, is preventing us, you know, individually from taking action around climate change? That is so much. And I, I don't, I kind of want to go in a direction of something you said right at the beginning of that, which is, so people are starting to integrate this belief and this understanding that we really are in a climate catastrophe, right? And so, well, maybe they won't, they won't use those words, but I will. And I think that we're, even though we're willing to allow that information in on one level, we still have all these defenses that keep us from really letting it completely be our consciousness, you know, because if we do, that can take us to a very, very scary place very quickly, right? And a hope, a sense of hopelessness. And if we stay in that space too long, we, we get frozen, we can't act at all. So I'm not exactly sure what the answer to that is because I think we, well, I think I do. I think we just have to get to the place where we're skillful in taking in the depth of um, the destruction and of where we're at and then allowing ourselves to move through the emotions of that, to truly come to terms with it, to grieve what has been lost, to even own that no matter what we do, we may not get out of this. and. Despite all of that, know that the only way forward is to keep working, to keep changing, to keep growing, you know, because what else, what other reason could we have to live, you know? Uh, to get Oof. a really high score in a, on a computer game or something. Or, right. I don't yeah. know. Maybe there's some other reasons. To go buy the, the, the next pair of shoes. <laughs> right. right. But really, no, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, you asked that question in a, in a rhetorical fashion. I, I totally agree. That's, you know, I think something that came up the other day some some former speechwriters for for Hillary Clinton were talking about how they wrote a speech about climate change back in the the aughts and uh, before she was even running for president and it, it came back with a bunch of notes from from Bill Clinton that said you need to make this sound like an adventure rather than you know this awful thing we have to take on and you know I, I used to work with teens all the time and teens are always looking for something powerful and motivating to do something meaningful to do besides just getting a high score on on the the uh the video game or whatever and i think you know i, I want to get a high score and adapting to climate change that's mm, my that's my yeah. goal well i mean it just makes me think like just adulting is relentlessly challenging and that's kind of on a human scale of of like keeping the bills paid and keeping the the cat box clean and keeping <laughs> the food on the table and you know just you know keeping the car on the road and all of that stuff i think humans can conceive of that level of task and it's relentless and there's more than we can get done in a day or a week or a year then 
there's this other thing that is so much bigger than we can even conceive of that we have that we feel like we have no power over and there's a little bit of responsibility in there too for each one of us we all share in the the quote unquote blame for creating it if we're mm-hmm. willing to accept that it's human created that that the ease of our lives is resulting in you know contributing to this this catac- catastrophe it's it's a huge thing to wrap our heads around. I don't know if there's a question in there. There doesn't seem to be a question in there. Yet. I well, just there needed is, to kind of frame yeah, it a little yeah, bit yeah, for myself yeah. and and maybe for listeners. Yeah. Of of kind of what acknowledging we're, the ignoring. Yeah, yeah, acknowledging that it's it's easy to push it to the side when we're just trying to you know deal with all of this regular life stuff plus a pandemic plus civil unrest plus blah blah blah. And then on top of that, we've got this Everybody big nebulous. Is now turning off the podcast. Yeah, no, no, but we're gonna have fun. We just had a, we Where's had a, you know, kind of pin that yeah. up on the yeah. wall to look yeah. at, and then now we're gonna talk about well, last month's last month's guest, David Johnson. His his big thing that's right on his website is feeling hopeless does not equal being helpless. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I really love what you said, Kat, about just because all of that is true. What are the options to, you know, give up and lie down or just to keep working? You know, and I look at civil rights and I look at women's rights and I look at all of these issues that, you know, the early pioneers in those movements did not see it fixed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we will not see this fixed probably, but having a life well lived is kind of at the heart of our big question of Mm -hmm. how can we how can we live in a way that. You know, that that old um, saying about, you know, I don't I want to slide into home base, just, you know, used up. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I don't want to be well preserved when I go out. I want to be used up. So how do we live in a way that is both contributing to the benefit of all life on Earth and to our, you know, setting ourselves on fire in a good way? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, you spoke to so many things that I was like, oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. I was imagining my teenage daughter, who's going to be 18 soon. I was imagining my college students in the classroom, them adulting in this time, as you were saying. And what I was thinking about is how they have been told a story about the way life is, right, since they were children. But they've also been part of this unraveling of that story. They've been watching that story unravel now in their most formative years. And they're no fools, you know? And so if they come into the classroom and their teachers are still teaching that old story, they're, they're looking at you like, no, that's no, we know that's not true. They're, they're ready. They're hungry for someone to just acknowledge that that old story is dying. And then of course, help them to create that new story. And like every good generation that's coming of age, I think there, there's a bit of, of uh, throwing off, you know, some of the assumptions of the old story and, and rebelling and so forth. So that's part of who they are developmentally. But I think especially in this time, they're recognizing that it is, we are so done with the old paradigm of how we live and what our purpose here is as humans and as consumers, this dominant social paradigm where economic progress is the goal. And all of these resources are here for our 
consumption and our economic growth individually. I think they're really, they get it. So they're ready for us, but they're ready to watch the adults actually do some adulting, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, some real adulting and grow up and look at what's really happening and be willing to be brave and, and embrace a new story too. And I do think part of that new story there, of course, there is a there is a something positive we can hang on to there, which is that we can learn these new skills of resilience. You know, we could talk about sustainability, but this word's becoming kind of passe as we recognize there's it's not that we want to sustain what we're doing because that's not working. We have to embrace we're in the middle of this huge climate disruption and societal disruption and live into that with new skills of resilience and and awareness and maybe just a lot, a lot of questioning as we decide, well, what do we do now and how do we live now? Yeah. And it takes, you, you said earlier, you know, we have to build some skills and it takes some skills to live in, to live in the unknown and to, and to develop resilience and to, you know, I know, I sense that a lot of folks have built their adult persona around a certain, a certain certainty, you know, that this is, this is how this, this is how you get ahead. This is how you create safety. This is how you create uh, abundance. This is how you create success. Success. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those things are, are up for grabs now. And, you know, I'm just wondering what, what are the psychological mechanisms that you're seeing or that you're helping other people develop to let go of what we thought and be able to be open to something new and unknown? Well, I think um, recognizing that it's a story and there are these assumptions. And so we just take a look at each one of them like rocks. We turn them over and we say, is this really true now? Yes or no? And then, so that's one aspect of it, which is really related to the aspect of just becoming mindful. You know, so this is where I bring in some It just doesn't have to be called Buddhist thought, but that's really helpful from my perspective of where we just start to recognize we can, we can let go and be at peace with not knowing the uncertainty is, you know, that is the reality and it always has been, but now we can really learn how to accept uncertainty as part, as the fundamental of life. Um, And just learning how to be with, you know, so practicing breath awareness emotion awareness, body awareness, mind and thought awareness, all of that as we start to, you know, really recognize that that those kinds of mindfulness approaches can help us to center ourselves emotionally, slow our thoughts, and use those resources, um, I think, to help us kind of know what to do next, I guess, you know? Yeah, it reminds Mm -hmm. me of the interview we had with Pete Pearson way Mm -hmm. back, like episode 67 or something. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, this is episode 100. Yeah, We're that is really excited. exciting. But uh, Pete talked about the, uh, gosh, I shouldn't have started this hair without remembering all of the details, <laughs> but but basically using mindfulness and awareness before taking action, but that action would arise out of this this mindfulness. And it, and it also makes me think about Michael Pollan in his book talking about doing uh, kind of exploring microdosing and people using um, psilocybin and other other mind altering tools. What he discovered was what he called the ground underneath the ground, and that has been my experience of just the tiny bit of meditation that I do now, like once a week. And for a while, I was doing it a couple times a week, but even just ten minutes a day, I discovered that there was this ground underneath the ground that was that was more solid than my identity, that was more solid than my 
momentary needs or fears or anxieties. And when I can reconnect with that, with that place to stand, I'm less battered by what's happening, what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm uncertain. And so I can, I can, I really can identify with your approach of, of using mindfulness. I like that the ground beneath the ground, I think it's getting to a deeper truth, you know, or wisdom about what's really happening in the moment, you know, and our, all the, the emotions in our body are, are there to help us connect with that deeper wisdom. But they can sometimes if we let them, they can they can just run us amok, you know, so it's about going, oh, okay, I'm feeling this. Why am I having this strong sensation, this reaction? Okay, let me just sit with it and let it settle. And where and so what is that telling me? You know, why is that so important to me? Why do I care about that? And so I think it's being able to just slow down enough and listen for that deeper, quieter voice, you know, that tells us, you know, about how we can live, how we can be in interaction with one another. I mean, it it starts to become a um, something I'm aware of is just this these characteristics of being mindful. Sitting on the cushion is a very great way to practice that. But having that mindset that can be with you throughout the day, and then you start to notice how much it affects your ability to communicate more successfully, to not re- react, get reactive if somebody else is coming at you, you know, with strong emotion or words. Etc. You know, as it plays out, or even do I need to buy this thing that I think think is this shiny new thing that I think is so important? So this mindfulness starts to help us see our habits. You know, our habits of consumption, our habits of coping that you know are that can be part of the unsustainable habits. Our habits of relating, our habits of thinking, what's a good life? So I think it t- does help us get in touch with that habit mind that we need to we need to start to shift. And I do love that, you know, just thinking about the habit, the behavioral habits, but the habits of mind as well as something to to learn about in ourselves as we kind of go down the path. My mind is just a mess. <laughs> it has all kinds of it has all kinds of habits. You're the only one though. Right. Mm-hmm. Anybody viewing this saw me hitting my head when you were talking about <laughs> why do I want to buy this thing? I've been online shopping I want to buy a new piece of podcasting equipment. What we have works fine, but I came within I came within an inch of spending a bunch of money on something the other day. Just and I know that it was just out of some other need, and I wish I could go back and spend a little more mindful time investigating what do I really what am I really looking for in this situation? What what stimulation? What novelty? What feeling of abundance or success or or whatever? coolness <laughs> am I looking for in this moment? Thank you for listening to this episode and thank you for joining us on this investigation into the question of our generation. How are we going to live in a way that can last? We hope you'll stay with us. So subscribe. It's free. It's easy. Just click the subscribe button on your podcast app to make sure you get every episode. We also invite you to join the community that's growing up around this podcast. Subscribe to the twice monthly newsletter at here-together.us slash join and come chat with us on the Clubhouse app. Clubhouse is this amazing, highly participatory audio only social media app, and I love it. We're extending the Here Together experience there every week. You can join the Here Together Clubhouse Club. We're there every Sunday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. If you're already on Clubhouse, search for and join the Here Together Club and you'll be notified whenever we open the room. It's easy. 
And if Clubhouse is new to you, don't worry. We wrote a simple Clubhouse user guide that you can find at here-together.us clubhouse. We'll be having the same valuable conversations with people who are already designing and living the solutions, and you can join in. Ask questions, share your thoughts, and be a part of the Here Together community in real time. Or you can just listen while you're doing the dishes. Whichever mode works for you is fine. Just join us. And be sure to check the show notes for more on the podcast guest and related resources. It's easy. Just click the notes tab on your podcast app or go to here-together.us slash pod for all the details, links, and what's not. Now back to the show. I didn't realize that you were in a co-housing situation uh, way back uh, early in your in your married life. It sounds like your uh, husband had some pretty strong reasons to, to move into a co-housing project. What were your reasons? Was it just to follow him or, or was there something there that you wanted? And maybe you could define co-housing for people that are listening to you. That would be really helpful. Sure. Um, so co-housing communities, actually the eco-village where I live, we are three neighborhoods, which are each a co-housing neighborhood and then a bigger village. Um, back in the um, 70s or 80s, I think, is when the first co-housing community happened. And we have probably, at this point, many, many hundreds of them just in the United States alone. They, if if just to get a concept, you might think, they sometimes look a little bit like a condominium community because they're like duplexes and they're, they look nice. They're, you know, attractive and there's a lot of people living kind of in close quarters. But what's different is the, the model of co-housing um, really honors the community and the pedestrian way of life. And so I don't think there's a community out there, a co-housing community that was built with, with driveways and carports coming to the houses. Um, usually the homes are built and clustered together in this kind of village-like setting with paths that connect. And then on the outside of that, that's where the, that's where the cars are. And so, you know, they, they, you have things like carts to get your groceries to your house and things like that. And the co-housing concept is that we want to know and live with our neighbors more closely. We want to have that community connection. We want to make decisions with each other about how we live generally by consensus, which is the, that's the decision-making model. We might own our own home or the right to live in our home and modify it however we want within certain limits, just like in a condominium, but we also share space. So there might be, and often is a shared community house or a common house um, where you might have shared meals together a couple of times a week. There's shared work. Usually, usually co-housing communities don't go out and hire landscapers. They have landscape committee, a garden committee, a common house committee, you know, just different groups that will voluntarily do, you know, about maybe four to eight hours a month of work for the, you know, for the good maintenance of a community. So it's really about being communitarian, being more close, working together, learning together, raising kids together, having lives together, and not being, not living in isolation, not like little homes on streets and everybody drives into their carport and closes the door and goes in. So it's more community oriented than uh, than a suburban housing development in that cars are on the outside and, and people are intentionally living together, but it's not a commune. People still work outside of the community and they and there's some some private ownership and, and some privacy, but there's this 
sort of element of of community you know uh, shared some shared work and in, in chores and feeding each other but it's not all required you don't have to all dress the same in a white robe and yep. and pray to the pray to the giant <laughs> beat god or anything yeah yeah, not unless there's certain traditional ceremonies. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's exactly right. And definitely, definitely people on the outside, you know, and the neighbors and, and people in town in Ithaca that don't know much about what's happening at Eco Village, you know, there's, they have those kind of misconceptions that we're some kind of cult. You know, most people in co-housing communities around the world um, have their lives and their families and their work that is external and then they just you know they still come back to the community and then they have a very rich community life as well with the community yeah yeah mm-hmm. and those of you who listen just so you know be sure to check out the show notes we're going to put a link to to the eco village at ithaca their website and to just some beautiful videos of that village if you're anything like us it will make your heart thump and your the hair stand up on your on your arms it's multi-generational there's kids there's elders there's working folks um there's a pond with ducks yeah it's just beautiful i mean it's therapeutic just to watch those videos and see that life can be fuller and beautiful and you know you guys built all kind of in the middle of this big piece of land so there's nature all around and i don't know it's there's a lot to there's a lot to recommend it. So, so back to the question, I guess, is what, you know, what made you say yes to, to your husband when he said, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's not, let's, let's move into co-housing. Let's not try to raise kids <laughs> in the, in the old way or whatever it was. Well, you know, what he said made sense to me for sure. And I'm like the researcher, you know, so I immediately started looking around to see what there was and discovered some, I, I don't know how, but I came across a book about co-housing. And then we were at dinner one night with some other friends and I was talking about it. And this friend, Gabriella said, oh, I know somebody who lives in a co-housing community in Seattle and I can introduce you to them. So it just kind of happened really organically from there. And, you know, before we knew it, we had a place to live. So for me, I think personally, um, I'm somewhere on the spectrum between introversion and extroversion. Uh, But so I could I could see the appeal of having you know, closer in community. It, I don't know. It spoke to me. I don't know why, but it spoke to, to some part of me that wanted more connection than less, you know, and I could, you know, for my own family history, I could appreciate what Joe was saying about um, the isolation of the nuclear family. It just seemed right that, you know, that maybe that model was dying and wasn't, you know, all it was cracked up to be, which is, I think what's happening now I think more people like this is starting to become a mainstream thought that, oh, my gosh, this nuclear family thing is just not serving us well. And we need to live differently and we need community. We need one another in a whole different way than we ever realized. And I can't help but think that's why we have something like 750,000 views on this video, maybe the one you were talking about that came out in November. And people are clamoring and asking, where can I how can I live like this? You know, can we create a community like this? Do you have any homes in your community? And yeah, and I think it's so important that we then stop and say, okay, well, just so you know, it can take a good five to 10 years to build something like this. I'm not sure if we have time or money for everybody to do that. But one of the big questions I have is how can we start to retrofit our 
existing suburbs and cities and so forth so that we can all be living like this according to these kinds of principles wherever we are. Yeah, we're actually talking to uh, Dr. Dion Payne from Australia who works with developers to raise money to in 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 some situations to retrofit suburban houses to to create co-living not co-housing but co-living situations where more than one more than one family can live because uh, she's just saying there's more and more people who need one and two bedroom houses and don't need you know these four and five bedroom McMansions that have been building all around the United States. And that's really our our passion project is how can we reuse existing structures, you know, abandoned schools or or you know factory buildings or office buildings that are sitting empty. How can we house people who need housing? How can we uplift communities as they are, you know, gentrify for the people who already live there and and help make it a richer experience through design, you know, a human-centric design that is sustainability-minded. So, you know, from a from a psychological standpoint, what needs, what basic needs of people are getting met in these co-housing situations that maybe aren't being met by suburban nuclear family style living? I mean, connection, right? <laughs> the fundamental number one connection with other human beings and many co-housing communities or eco-villages connection with the natural world. There is definitely that value, you know, that's placed on connection um, and recognizing our interdependence and seeing ourselves as part of this ecological system. And um, I personally don't think you can underestimate how desperately we need that. So a connection with with the whole, with all other natural world, including other humans, maybe a way to put it. So that's number one, and maybe this, the second would be just recognizing that that we can get our needs met for intimacy, creativity, curiosity, play. You know those those needs that are so fundamental that I think we've been channeling, you know, inappropriately into consumption. You know, whether it's consuming entertainment, media, stuff, extravagant vacations, you name it. We're all doing those things because we think that's what we need to be happy. Um, when really, we might find that those can be nice, but what makes us truly happy is those fundamental connections with humans and other nature and places where we can be, where we're living out our needs for creativity and fun and play in more, I don't know, basic ways, more shared ways, more authentic ways that aren't, you know, consuming the world. Yeah. 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 Do you like creativity? Is that, is that an important need of yours? <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's, a, Kelly's an artist. That was sarcasm. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, you know, we've got, we've got these basic, you know, we've got these needs for both, you know, kind of security and novelty that are sometimes in tension. And I really like how at least the idea for me of co-housing seems to be able to meet both of those needs in a more flexible way. Like I'm secure, I'm in a place that that I have some control over, I'm not going to get kicked out, I know who my neighbors are, there's a process for creating a relationship, um, I'm less likely to be eaten by my cats if I, if I uh, you know, fall down in the night, somebody's going to come check on me. Um, and there's new people coming in, there's new 
you know, we get to have dinner and have discussions and bring in, you know, art and entertainment. And so, you know, kind of balancing those, those needs seems like a, a great project for living together. Yeah. And I really like you brought up, I didn't really bring up security, right? And I, that's fundamental, our safety and our well-being. And when you know all your neighbors and you learn to trust them, then you have all these people around you that you feel safe with. And think about how that is just not part of the American reality in so many places and cities and suburbs. Now we have all these people around. We don't know. They're strangers. We don't feel safe. So yeah, this fundamental sense of well-being and security, you really get that living in a community together. And, um, and then the security of maybe even the material needs, like, well, there's backup. You know, my neighbor, if I don't have it, my neighbor has it. If, if we, and we've had like an ice storm comes and the electric goes out. And before you know it, we're all gathering around a gas stove and making stone soup. And everybody's bringing some piece, you know, to the part for the soup. So we know we've got, we can pool our resources together and, and we can, you know, keep going and surviving. And of course, growing food, that's a whole other topic we haven't even launched into. So you really do start to have a sense of security and well-being living in these kinds of contexts. Mm. And um, yeah, and we can rest in that, that reassurance that it's not all on us to do everything. And living in Ithaca, New York, in the middle of the winter, you know, we've got people who that's their job to make sure the paths are clear from snow. And, you know, and um, in the summer, there's people that work on the paths for hiking and walking. And um, yeah, there is, it's amazing to have so many people all kind of looking out for the good of one another. And it's completely in contrast to that fortress that you go into by your, with your, with your little nuclear family. Close the garage door. And you got to, you got to raise a kid in co-housing situation. And my understanding is that's, that's a very different kind of experience for a kid growing up. Yeah. I think that's something that draws a lot of people in right now. Young families looking at how can we raise our kids in community? How can they have that freedom to run out their door and down the path and go see their friends and, and, and be held, you know, be, be seen and be cared for by more adults than just their, their two parents. The only thing I've seen is that there's a little bit of a rub about when you turn 15 or so, <laughs> teenagers start to become, you know, very um, hypersensitive to being observed. They get, you know, egocentric and, and worried about what others think, and they feel like everybody's watching them. And so at least my own personal experience is that that can be a hard time for the teenagers, and they might retreat more and hide more and be a little bit like, oh, God, eco village, really? But I, I suspect, because I've heard a little bit of this from my daughter, for sure, but I suspect in very short time period, you know, give her a few years in college or living in the city or wherever she's going to go, and she'll start to really appreciate what it's been for her to grow up here. And the little kids, they, you know, they would just tell you, they, they love it. They absolutely adore it. Yeah. 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 A thousand grandparents. Right. Right. <laughs> aunties and uncles. You're preaching to the choir about all the benefits of this. Um, I my guess about people who would be skeptical or mm. hesitant to to live in a a community situation like this was just that it's hard to hard to share. You have to give things up in your research and among your students and in your experience living in co-housing situations, what are people bad at? Hmm. 
well, this is clearly not a utopia. And so we, we struggle with all the same things humans everywhere struggle with. Um, social loafing, you know, there's, there are those who always do their share and those who really don't, right? Um, so that's something we're bad at, I guess, is that people can sometimes let other people do the work, you know, if they're, you know, of that mentality, um, or maybe they're just too busy. And I guess a, a, a sweeter side of that could be, we acknowledge that sometimes people are going through a hard time in their life and they need a little break. And so we give each other slack and then hopefully it comes around and that person, you know, gives more later. Let's see, doing the consensus decision-making process I mentioned earlier is a, is a feat. It can be very, very difficult um, because it, at the end of the day, a consensus decision means everybody has to agree. You're not voting and it's not nine out of 10 people agree. It's everybody has to agree. And it takes one person from one household to block a decision from happening. And I've seen it many times and it can cause a lot of heartache and a lot of distress and conflict in a community. That said, we can also make decisions this way. And maybe it's more than you want to get into in this discussion, but we two of the neighborhoods of the three are seriously starting to work with a new process called sociocracy or dynamic governance. This decision-making process feels a lot like consensus, but the way we get to that place, I think is more democratic, is more um, sensitive to the needs of different kinds of personalities, like making sure everybody's voice really truly has a space and also kind of keeps the voices that are too loud too often in check and actually speeds the process of decision making. So in my experience, sociocracy gets us to those decisions more quickly than consensus. But yeah, the decision-making piece is hard. I, other things we, we have conflicts around or that are difficult in terms of living together can just be our own, we, we bring our own aesthetics. We bring our own sense of what's mine and what's yours. And we bump heads around those things. We might, you know, somebody might want to put a fence up, God forbid, you know, around their yard or between two yards. And that can really cause a stir between neighbors. And you'd be surprised that those kinds of things can lead to um, hard feelings between people. Yeah. 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 No, I can imagine, you know, in, in some of the other folks that we've talked to about co-housing, they just talk about the amount of time that gets spent in meetings and the amount of time that gets spent talking in it. And it does it. And I think it takes a lot of... Um, like we yeah. generally want to live together well, but, but we have these individual needs and desires that come into conflict. And we have that what you were saying made me think of, Charles, um, you know, that we act out, you know, we act out with our partners, with our family members, and we act out with our community members. And it, we think it's all about something they're doing, but it turns out maybe it's about us sometimes. So let me ask you this. <laughs> do you, what do you think is the biggest obstacle to the success of, of co-housing and eco-villages and that sort of community? Is it just those inherent human things or is it you know like government regulation or the marketplace or i i mean all of those things are challenges but what do you think is the the biggest challenge oh gosh i'm not sure if i can answer that with authority well just from your experience i mean at the level of uh, in a community already functioning and trying to stay a healthy functioning community i think the biggest challenge really does come back to our individual human, you know, the, sort of the, the, the fight between individuality and interdependence, you know, and 
Yeah. And that we're still learning about that. You know, we have it in us. I think we have it way back in our DNA from a time when we lived more, you know, together in caves or clans or whatever you want to, however you want to think about that. But we, you know, it's just been ingrained in us now for a good long while that individualism is the way. And so I think we have a lot of conflicts around that. We're getting a lot of mixed messages. You know, we're still of this world that tells us, you know, to get more for me and and it's all about me. So I think that's probably one of the hardest things about keeping a healthy community going and maybe a selling point for other people who you want to say, why don't you give it a try? You know, but now when you get to the, the larger question of how can we have more communities like this, whether they're retrofitted, like I said earlier, you know, take, I love the idea of taking existing buildings and neighborhoods that are ready for some, some new life to be breathed into them. I think that level, that has to do more with, you know, uh, planners and architects and designers and governments and, you know, and really creating a new vision of what, of how we could live. That is very exciting to me too. I'd love to see, you know, how, how do we, how do we create that? I mean, every way, I guess, through podcasts, through changing education, through, you know, working with politicians and local governments. I think that probably local cities and towns and counties that that's probably where we're going to start to see those shifts. I think we're seeing it in Ithaca. I think, um, but like little progressive pockets can start to really model that vision. And hopefully if enough models are out there, then others will catch on. That's a great segue into, into this question. You know, you're the interim director now of Ithaca Thrive, the the educational arm of the Eco Village at Ithaca, and the and for those that don't know, the Eco Village at Ithaca is one of the one of the largest, most kind of most successful eco villages in North America. And I know you all have a commitment to kind of spreading. I'll, I'll say the gospel just because it's an easy, you know, it's an easy meme, right? It's just to spreading the good news about about co housing and, and eco villages. What are some projects that you have uh, that you're excited about coming up to 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 spread the news a little more? Mm-hmm. Well, we're continuing. We're just coming out of the COVID times, we hope. And um, so we're just getting back to some of the work that we have. It's been what we did in the past, like Eco Village Experience Weekends and Eco Village Design Weeks, where people can come and have an immersion experience and learn about being in an Eco Village. And at the same time, I believe where we're headed and the board seems to be in agreement too, is we really want to help people see that you don't have to start from scratch and create that eco-village or that co-housing community. Although I think there's still room for some of that. What I'm most excited about is starting to form collaborations and partnerships with organizations in town, with the colleges in town, with the city. Um, We have Ithaca's Green New Deal is alive and well, and really start to look at ways we can collaborate for demonstration projects and talk about more. Here are the lessons of living in an eco-village or a co-housing community and how can we apply them wherever we are. So that, you know, so example for an example, having a, a vision of the city of Ithaca as an edible city where just like when we walk through the neighborhoods up here at Eco Village, there's just food growing everywhere. You know, there's permaculture gardens, there's fruit trees and berries and all of this food, instead of just, let's have some nice ornamental parks. How about parks that are edible? And there's more of a, a culture of just growing food in general, in people's yards, making access for people who don't have their own real estate to grow food and access that food. 
that would be one example, I think, of a, a way we could start to model um, this kind of resilient living outside of just an eco-village or a co-housing community. So instead of insisting on the whole package, you know, it has to be this way. It has to be an eco-village with this proportion of wild space and this intergenerational stuff, being able to export the some of the principles and good ideas that you've developed that could fit in in other spaces. I think so. I think it's got to be part of the, the, the mix of solutions. And absolutely, if there's somebody who's a developer and they're thinking, how can I go and develop a new, you know, I don't know, 100 acres of places for people to live. Yeah, please, before you develop all of those 100 homes on one acre lots, come check out Eco Village. Yes. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. because that was exactly what happened here. A developer's plan was to turn 175 acres into, I don't know, 100 or so homes on suburban plots. And that was going to leave about maybe 5 to 10% of the land wild or green. And we did exactly the opposite. All of the 100 homes up here at Eco Village are on about 15 acres. And the rest has been left for farms and fields and forests and wildlife and so forth. So I think that however that looks at the level of city planning, you know, local planning, I think that's an important lesson. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Mm. Number eight, you want to try number eight? Let's try it. Okay. Let's let Kat have a sip. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering what is number eight? Uh-oh. Right. So oh. we're going to we're going to ask you to put your imagination hat on and your big dreamer hat on and imagine that it's you know, it's 2050. We've got 30 years from now. And the work that you've been doing really has caught on. And much of America and maybe even the world are living more like Ithaca Eco Village. What is what do you see in that world? What's different? Wow, that is a big question. So um I guess I would start by saying one thing that we don't have here that would be different would be that this way of living would be available to everybody, you know, that it would really be equitable and just and diverse. So this would not be um, a place of mostly white middle-class professionals, right? This would be a place of all back, all kinds of backgrounds, races, religious beliefs, you know? So wherever people were living, whether it was in Villages designed like this or on in city neighborhoods, there would be access to healthy food. People would be having meaningful work. The way people's lives would be spent, the days would be spent, you know, with some hands in the dirt, you know, in some way, whether it's in little garden spots, whether it's playing in the dirt, whether it's out hiking, you know, but people would be really, you know, they would really understand where their food came from. Much of their food would be much closer, you know, it, it would be coming from uh, local sources. Consumption would be way different <laughs> than it is now. I mean, truly, by 2050, if it's not, I don't even know. I just, I, I won't say the words that come to mind because I don't want <laughs> to frighten everybody. But I think yeah. we would, you know, we'd really have a different relationship to the material stuff. Um, so now I'm like, I just feel embarrassed because I'm just starting to like dream up this like kind of utopian view. But this that's is not, what this is, this is not the place to be embarrassed about utopia. 
Uh-uh. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's at least the dream. You have to dream towards yeah. something yeah. better, yeah. you know? And so I, I might, if you ask me to predict, I might go down another path. But to dream would be those things. So, you know, people would be, at the very least, all of their basic needs for health, for, you know, health and wellness, for food, for warmth, for shelter, and, you know, that connectedness to each other and and the natural world. That would be part of the, you know, the most fundamental values we have, you know, and um, so our cities and our towns would look a lot more like an eco-village. Thank you for sharing that village. Yes. Or that, that village. Thank you for sharing yes. that village vision. Yes. Village, villagey vision. Vision. Like, yes. It's great Villain, to be able to do it. Villision. Because, <laughs> you know, some days I wake up and it's really hard to keep embracing that vision in the face of what we're, we're dealing with. Um, yeah. 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 I bet. Yeah, it can be. But uh, we have to, I think. And part of my vision is that people come to upstate New York and they can't decide between moving into the village, the eco-village at Ithaca, or moving to the, I don't know what we're going to call it. Yeah. The Utica To be determined. TBD village. village. I can't wait to see it. One of the other questions that we had for you, Kat, what are, what are some, uh, you know, top three pieces of advice you would have for the regular person as far as uh, making their lives more sustainable, maybe moving to an eco village isn't an option. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what w- what do you tell people? Yeah, spend less, live better. You know, and so I've been reading the Voluntary Simplicity book. Was it Dwayne Elgin that was uh, really popular back in the '90s? And especially the first couple of chapters, I was like, "Yep, relevant more than ever." And I think truly, one is just to you know really think about your budget. And like, what do you really need to live and starting to recognize how valuable your time is um, and that all the stuff you buy is taking away from your time, you know? And then like, so I think that's one piece of it is just really getting clear about what you need, what you value in terms of living sustainably. God, there's so much just to narrow it down to just three. I guess I would go back to, you know, starting to recognize your habits, you know, and there's certain things if we had more time, I would just get into the kind of the process of changing habits and what that's about. But recognizing habits and, you know, setting yourself up to change, you know, the ones that make the most sense for you in your life, whether it's about, you know, where you buy your food or um, how much plastic you need to use to consume or, you know, where you get your clothes, you know, consumption habits, those kinds of things, driving. What's another one? If you were just living in any old place. I think that's great. Just, you know, really, you know, really, really thinking about what it is that you really need to be happy. Mm -hmm. And then recognizing, recognizing your habits. Like I said, I was like, I, I know that I wanted to buy that piece of podcasting equipment in large part because there was some sort of habitual or psychological need. It was, I don't, we're recording a podcast right now. (laughs) I clearly don't need that piece of equipment to do to do what I want to do. But there was yeah. something. No, I'm never going to be able to get it. I see. I feel sadness. Just even. So I got to do investigate that. What's that? What's yeah. that sadness about? Yeah. Investigate that. Keep being mindful. Yeah. So how can, how can folks find out more about the eco village and thrive at Ithaca and the, and the resources there? Where would you send them? I would send them. I do think a good starting point is the eco village, which is just ecovillageithaca.org. 
And um, that'll give you a, a place to start to understand what we're about, how to find information about if there are things available, places to live here. And then if you want more information about developing eco-villages or living sustainably, resiliently, uh, go to the Learn section, which will take you to the Thrive site, which is basically thriveithaca.org. That's where we have our programs. Uh, we have a number of upcoming online programs, and we're going to have more in-person programs as we get into the warmer weather. So those are two really good, good places to start. We're also, we have a YouTube channel. If you just look up Eco Village Ithaca, you'll get there. We have a Facebook page, same thing. So those are some some good, good places. Definitely check out the YouTube videos because there's a number of videos that have been posted recently. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put all those links in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Absolutely. Catherine Caldwell, thank you so much for being with us on this investigation and this journey. And thank you to the listener who's mm -hmm. coming along with us as we figure out a way to find, create, support that place where our bones feel good, yes. to put your, your metaphor uh, about just being able to kind of rest correctly, lightly, and joyfully on the earth. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And it's easy. Just push the subscribe button on your podcast app. Yep. It's free and easy. Yep. And be sure to join us in the Here Together Community Lab on Facebook, where we will be sharing all of these ideas, sharing the articles that we've been talking about. And, and sure. we want to hear from you and yep. what your story is about sustainability and community. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We hope and trust that you got something of value and something actionable to aid and inspire you on your sustainability journey. We invite you to continue with us on this expedition into positive impact and more satisfactory, satisfying and sustainable living. Subscribe to the twice monthly newsletter. It's short and sweet, full of useful resources. And of course, my favorite part, a gratuitous podcast picture. And remember to join the Here Together Club on Clubhouse. You can also engage with us on Twitter at HereTogether1. We'll be there sharing climate news and really important photos of sustainable alpaca farms. Yay! Go ahead and tag us on tweets that you think should get more attention. Again, we're building a community of newly empowered local climate action takers and personal sustainability makers. Together, Together we, we got this! this. The Here Together podcast is a project of Rocket Feather Creative. Rocket Feather Creative.